I'm always a little amused by people who say direct mail is dead or it's dying or it's going to be gone in five years. I've always kept it a practice in my office. I've got this old copy of a direct marketing magazine and the headline on the front page is, is this uh, direct mail's dying days. And uh, it was printed in 1998. So I, I think, you know, it's it survived those 20 years since then. And it's, I certainly think it's going to uh, be here and be healthy and be vibrant for a number of years, but the, the reality is uh, what's different from 30, 40 years ago is it's not the only thing anymore. Hey guys, thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McCord, and on today's episode, we have Tom Gaffney. Tom is a speaker, a consultant, and a direct marketing creative savant. Gaffney spent a couple of decades running the creative for a direct response agency and has been on his own for uh, the last few years. He's written appeals for hundreds of nonprofits. And uh, on the discussion that you're going to hear today, we talk through relevance and authenticity. Uh, we get his perspective on what makes for good direct response creative and even how channels are evolving. I, I so appreciate Tom getting into his perspective on the use of events and event marketing and how that balances with analog channels like direct mail and then also how new emerging channels from the digital space all play together. So it's a, um, a wonderful conversation. I was really happy to have Tom on board and I think you're gonna really enjoy it. Uh, if you enjoy it, Actually, you know, enjoy it or not, we want to hear from you. So be sure to comment on the episode. You can also subscribe in whatever app that you're listening to Group Thinkers today. And uh, also be sure that you follow us. You can find us on Twitter at Group Thinkers. Don't forget to look for RKD on Twitter as well. So with that, uh, here's Tom Gaffney. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. Uh, I'm your host, Justin McCord, and uh, very excited today to visit with Tom Gaffney. Tom, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Justin. How are you? Doing, doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to chat. I, you know, I always start with uh, a common question because I find it interesting to hear people's journey and, and their story and how they came into nonprofit marketing. If you could just, you know, tell our listeners a snippet of your journey. How did you end up here? Well, I, I guarantee you my story is different than everyone else you'll ever speak to. I actually discovered what I wanted to do one day while I was sitting on the floor of a train station in Milan, Italy. And, uh, I haven't heard that one yet, that's for sure. No, nah, that's a new one. I, I, had, I had actually graduated from college. I knew I loved to write. Had zero idea what I wanted to do. So, of course, what I did is I decided I'm going to travel to Europe and go backpacking for $10 a day for 10 weeks. And I did just that. And one day I'm in this train station in Milan, Italy, and I start talking to this kid who had been there, had come over from Maryland, and I said, what do you do? He goes, well, I, I used to work for a, um, a little newspaper in town, and I just decided that really didn't interest me. I've decided I'm going to go into advertising and direct marketing. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, it's a great way to 
try to motivate and persuade people using imagery and using words and using um, your, your persuasion skills. And he, he rhapsodized about it for about 10 minutes. And I realized at that moment, you know, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. So I, uh, which is a pretty big indictment, I guess, of our uh, career counseling services that I discovered <laughs> my career in you know, a train station talking to some uh, person I never met again. You went to, you know, you went on this backpacking trip to find yourself. And, and you I did. And uh, I, I actually am one of those people who, uh, who did find myself. So I came back, I knocked on a bunch of doors. And one day I knocked on the door of this place called National Direct Mail, which uh, uh, eventually became uh, Odell Roper, a very prominent agency in Washington, D.C. And the, uh, the the copywriter, as it turns out, was having a nervous in the process of having a nervous breakdown, I guess. And so I uh, I went in, I interviewed them. I had a little book. Uh, I, I, had, I had actually used the trip to Europe to write articles that were printed in my local hometown newspaper. So I had some writing samples and things like that, and they hired me. And uh, th- as it turns out, this company specialized in political fundraising as well as for hospitals and for zoos and it took me about 10 minutes when I got in there the first day to realize I'd I'd hit the jackpot because here I was I I was getting to leverage my skills in persuasion but I was also uh, had this opportunity to help um, further the common good through fundraising and through direct marketing and so that's uh, that day I just fell in love with what I do and uh, it's been a decade, multiple decade long love affair, I guess. And still at it today. Uh, and, and I want to talk in a, in a couple of minutes about, you know, just the, the creative process and what that looks sure. like as a, a direct response marketer for you, you know, you help shape and guide, uh, someone's voice and become that engine behind it. But before we get there, I, I got to ask you, we're at the close of the time that we're recording this. We're at the close of 2018. We're moving into 2019. Uh, how would you characterize the state of direct mail at this time? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I'd say, you know, the obvious thing is it's evolving. And direct mail, I... I'm always a little amused by people who say direct mail is dead or it's dying or it's going to be gone in five years. I, I, I've always kept it a practice in my office. I, I've got this old copy of a direct marketing magazine and the headline on the front page is, is this uh, direct mail's dying days. And uh, it was printed in 1998. So I, I think, you know, it's it survived those 20 years since then. And it's, I certainly think it's going to uh, be here and be healthy and be vibrant for a number of years. But the, the reality is uh, what's different from 30, 40 years ago is it's not the only thing anymore. Right. It's, uh, I, I always like to think of it as more of a role player in an ensemble play as opposed to be in a significant one, but as opposed to being the lead actor on the stage. And, and I think that's how fundraisers and organizations really need to start thinking about it. I think for those core philanthropic older donors, that greatest generation that uh, generates a ton of money 
uh, of the fundraising pie in America. I think direct mail is, is still a major player. In fact, I'd call it the major player in reaching this audience and uh, speaking to them in a way they prefer. So, and, and I think that is the case. And, and television can certainly reach these people as well. Uh, more and more people are using it, and I think that's a tremendous vehicle. But uh, but direct mail is really the, the workhorse for that group, and I, I think it will remain so, and I don't see that changing for, frankly, a number of decades. Uh, in terms of other demographic segments, you know, if you want to acquire a 20-year-old 20, 20 or a 30-year-old, and boards are always talking about getting those younger donors, you're not going to do it through direct marketing. And you're more likely to do it through special events or some type of activity because that audience likes to uh, share experiences. And you, you, you look at, uh, and I've got five kids and they're all between 20, in the 20s and 30s. And they're all about experiences as opposed to acquiring things. And, and the most successful fundraising vehicles I've seen for that group is experiential, whether you're walking, hiking, biking. I actually did an event uh, a couple of weeks ago for an organization. It's a very clever event, Covenant House, and uh, it's, it was called the Sleepout. Oh, that's where an incredible they, event. It, it, it's, it's unbelievable. So what they do is Covenant House helps homeless children, and, and they've been around forever, and they're, they do wonderful work. And so they hit upon the idea about 10 years ago why don't we get, and they call it the executive sleep out. They've got other variations since then, but why don't we get a number of prominent executives to kind of put their money where their mouth is and sleep outside. And we'll give them a piece of cardboard. We'll give them a, um, a sleeping bag and we'll uh, give them cookies at the end of the mo at the end of the day. And we'll let them talk to the kids at night. We'll learn about the charity so anyway, to make a long story short, I've done that seven years in a row now. And there are a lot of young people now who do that as well. And they, they found that they've got this young professional event where they're getting hundreds of people engaged in the charity by doing that. And that, so that's, uh, for the younger audience, that's the way to do it. And for all that, those people in between, the boomers, you know, online, email, all of them have a place, and uh, direct mail has its place too. It's just now, just not going to be. It's got a seat at the table, I think, rather than kind of dominating at the head of the table. I think it's so a, that's that's where I see it right now. A couple of, of fascinating jumping off points, Tom, and you know, one of the theories that I've long had about. Uh, direct mail is that um, it carries so much intimacy because the process, the idea totally. of writing a letter and me receiving a letter from some other person is personal. It's such a personal, intimate channel. And, uh, and then it's ability to scale in uh, a personal, intimate way, ability to scale. And I think that you're right that, you know, events can carry a massive amount of intimacy, but they can be difficult to scale online. Right. Uh, maybe you lose some of the intimacy mobile. You lose some of the intimacy, but you have high engagement rates, just less intimate. So you're, I, I love your perspective that all of these things have to work together and it's, it's no longer about a single horse race. Well, and, and you make a great point. In fact, I, I meant to mention that because I, 
I think too often when we, and I just was guilty of it myself, but too often when we talk about kind of the, uh, the place of direct mail, we talk about it in terms of being a channel. But I think that undersells it in the sense that direct mail is an incredibly overlooked method to be truly personal in a way that other means of communication can't be. Direct mail is very tactile. It's very private. It's very one-to-one. And I, I also think direct mail will always, in its own way, conjure up kind of those nice hidden emotions we have within each of us about happy memories. I mean, we get our birthday cards through direct mail. We get our through mail. We get our uh, notices of getting into college through mail. I mean, there's all these life events about things that happen for, to us and for us where mail is a part of it. And I think that that uh, this for a, a certain audience, particularly people 65 and over, there, there's a halo attached to mail that uh, is very special. It's very personal. It's very private. It's very tactile. And I think for all those reasons, it'll always be very effective to those people. So what makes, and this isn't a, a direct mail co- uh, question, but just about direct response creative. And, uh, you know, yeah. you've been in this space for a minute. So uh, what, <laughs> what makes great direct response creative? What are the, the characteristics sure. of great direct response creative? Well, my glib answer would be it, what makes it great, great direct response is great results. And I, I only say that partly facetiously. I mean, we're blessed to be in an extremely highly measurable business. And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a scorecard at the end of the day to determine exactly how great um, anything we do is. And in fact, when I ran an agency, I, I had had on the wall um, just a little saying that in my mind summed it up. I, I, it said that, you know, we believe there's one criteria and only one criteria to judge the value of a creative uh, idea. And that is, did it meet your objectives? Hmm. And for uh, a, a piece to be viewed as outstanding creative, it must generate outstanding results. And and so that's... Uh, that's, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, that is what great creative is. And I've done in my career, as we all have, you know, I've done many fancy packages that looked good and felt right and seemed clever and seemed funny or whatever, but they didn't work. And uh, from the from the standpoint of, or from one person's standpoint, someone might have said, you know, wow, that's really creative. But if it doesn't get results, it uh, it's not. So that's uh, so that's one way I look at it. The other way I look at it is I, I had been taught really early on in business by one of the best copywriters who ever lived, the guy named Richard Armstrong, and he he talked about you know this formula that has been pretty famous in the ad world, and it's AIDA: attention, interest, desire, and results. And frankly. It all comes down to getting attention. I mean, we as fundraisers can spend weeks preparing an appeal 
and the success of it can be determined within five seconds. And uh, unless we are somehow able to get the attention of a person on the other end, to get the interest of a person on the other end, to speak to that person in a provocative way that gets them all excited, then we're going to fail. And uh, you'll notice that everything I'm talking about right now, it's not about what we do, it's about the recipient. Right. The, sen the sender doesn't have the power. The recipient does, the donor does. And unless what I do excites them, interests them, provokes them, motivates them, it's not going to be great. And I think uh, my, my big thing, and I, I talk a lot about this in speeches, I think as fundraisers, too often we get it backwards. The big mistake a lot of us make is that um, we think that because we have needs as fundraisers, people will give to us. Well, people don't give to us because we have needs. They give to us because we meet needs, especially the needs of the person getting the piece. Every donor has, donor has a need to feel important, to feel appreciated, uh, to feel special, to feel recognized, to feel they're having a tangible impact. So great direct response meets those needs. It gets, it, it gets past that enormous hurdle we face at the beginning. And then it shows the donor in very vivid, provocative ways how that donor saved a life, how that donor made a difference, how that donor reached into someone's heart. And that's really the philosophical underpin, in my mind, of a great direct response. Philosophically, it's understanding that it's all about the donor and meeting the donor's or the prospect's emotional needs. And then tactically, it's about uh, kind of presenting a, a case and a story that uh, gets their attention and gets read and gets results. This episode of Group Thinkers is brought to you by the RKD Group blog. You might be listening on a mobile device right now, and if so, you can go ahead and open up a browser window and visit rkdgroup.com slash blog. When you get there, you're going to find all sorts of resources tackling issues that are current in the nonprofit marketing space. There's channel-specific resources focused on direct mail, digital, multi-channel and even omni-channel. There's also hot topics like GDPR, mid-level, digital media, look back windows, and more. It's all over at rkdgroup.com slash blog. And now, back to group thinkers. You know, you you mentioned so many great points there and, and the battlefield that's so small for results because it could be the space between a mailbox and, a, and you know, a kitchen counter or a trash can. That could be a battlefield <laughs> for offline. Right. Or it could be the distance that your thumb swipes from, you know, one side of your phone to the other in, exactly. uh, in, in some online channels. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I also, I so appreciate how you reference the storytelling aspect and uh, and nonprofits are rich on mission and rich on stories and so telling the story I think is many times the complicated side of how to tell 
that story well. Now, uh, because you are, have been on the creative side as part of your career, I do want to understand, you know, you, your craft and, and your career have been about channeling the voice of another person. So whoever is the storyteller for an organization, uh, where do you draw your inspiration in going through that craft? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I, I, I guess uh, fundamentally, I, I always try to put myself in the shoes of that person who's going to be writing the story or, or writing the appeal or that person who is going to be the subject of the appeal. You know, one of the reasons I, um, I, and I referenced earlier the sleep out for Covenant House, one of the reasons I slept on a sidewalk in New York when they had had four inches of snow that night is not because, not only because I wanted to raise money for the charity and I believed in it, but what better way to experience the pain and trauma of being a homeless kid than to uh, grab a piece of cardboard and grab a sleeping bag and go outside and sleep on a miserable night when it's 30 degrees. So I think, I think there's a certain experiential element to everyone, uh, to, to anyone who really wants to truly understand the heartbeat of an organization and also understand the voice of the person who writes about it. I mean, if you, uh, you know, if you want to raise money for AARP foundation or consumer reports foundation, and I'm fortunate to work with both of those groups, you know, be a card carrying member of those groups immerse yourself in it, understand what they're all about. I've, uh, well, I've got one organization I work with where they go on mission trips and I've been fortunate to go to the border in El Paso, Texas and see what kind of services they're providing to migrants as they come over the border so I can truly understand what it is they're all about. And so the best case, frankly, for any writer is to literally walk a mile in the writer's shoes. And if, uh, and if that's not possible, then it's really important to interview, you know, painstakingly, often with a ton of questions, interview that signature and say, you tell me what I need to know. Tell me why you're involved. Tell me why you care. Tell me why a stranger who I just meet on the street later today should really give a care about uh, about what it is you do, and the, the one other point I'd make is that I, when I talk to anyone with an organization, I don't, you know, I, I obviously try to get the nuts and bolts and what is it you do and how is it you do it and all that, but the main question I always try to dig really deeply in for any organization is, okay, what did you feel then? How do you feel about this? When you looked at a person in need, what was, what was going through your head? What feelings did you have? Were you angry? Were you hurt? Were you embarrassed? Were you lonely? Because I, I think that as much as people can be uh, on the other end who receive our communications, as much as they can be motivated by facts and rational viewpoints and common sense, you know, ultimately, we're most motivated by feelings and by something that touches us emotionally and, and reaches into our heart and makes us remember. And uh, 
for anyone who wants to channel uh, an organization and to be a successful writer, you really need to get at that aspect as well. The, uh, the underpinning or the, the through line that I feel as you're talking about that is about relevance and authenticity. And totally. You know, the, you have to be authentic to who you are. That's, uh, that's such a, a um, it can be painstaking at times to try and figure out who you are as an organization within the context of a fundraising strategy so that you can be authentic and stay relevant in your marketing mm-hmm. messages uh, that, that you're putting out, especially when we live in a space to where we compare ourselves to others through benchmark reports and, you know, we come together and do a great job, I think, within our industry of sharing examples and sharing best practices. But we can't lose sight of who we are and maintaining relevance and authenticity. No question. No, and you know the and the relevance in particular. And I, I, I and I love the authenticity point as well. But you know, when we look at how we as fundraising organizations compete against others and how we can most you know, most assuredly succeed. One of the two or three major things we as, as organizations need to do is demonstrate absolute relevance, not only to the world around us, but also to the, the person we're reaching out and why they should care, and why they should believe in us, and why they should uh, understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that they need to support what we do. You know, I think that uh, it's a good segue into uh, one of the the kind of audacious topics that that we talk about on every episode of Group Thinkers, and that's just what issues people are facing. And authenticity may be, in fact, one issue that we're facing totally uh, in this current state. But what do you see as the most pressing issues facing nonprofits right now? Well, I, I, I look at it from kind of two angles. One is kind of what is the organizational kind of issues about the institutions. And then there's the, the fundraising issues. From, from an organizational standpoint, I, mean, I think there are three big challenges each group needs to um, tackle in order to win going forward. And one of them is I, I just talked about it. It's relevance. We need to, as an organization, you know, amidst the 1.5 other nonprofits that are out there, we need to uh, show or demonstrate relevance or people aren't going to care. I I think the second thing we need to uh, show as organizations is impact. People want to know that every dollar they send to, uh, to a charity is used and used well and uh, is used in such a way that uh, uh, it was a smart decision on their part to send it. And the the third thing I think organizationally that are kind of the challenges for all groups these days is I think everyone needs to demonstrate trust and uh, to uh, demonstrate transparency because we are in such a cynical period in America right now where there are, you know, the, uh, you, you see statistics about how, I saw a statistic recently and I, I've used it in presentations that people, l- less than half of the people believe 
um, the marketing spiels they see on television. And, you know, if you compare that to 30 or 40 years ago, it would be upwards of 80% believe what they hear. Now it's below 50 and it's, it's, it's going down more and more every day. So people need to feel they can trust an organization and they're transparent in how they uh, market themselves and how they talk about themselves. So these, these kind of three, three legged stool uh, points of relevance, uh, impact and trust. I think organizationally, those are the uh, most pressing issues facing nonprofits. I think from a fundraising standpoint, I think uh, we have this crying need uh, as fundraisers to really build more engaging and more um, long-term relationships. I, you know, when I oftentimes when I talk to organizations, I ask them how many donors they have. And they go around the table and they give me the numbers. And at the end of it, I say, well, I, I, my, my view is you've got zero because you don't own any donors. There's no donor that belongs to you. In fact, it's the other way around. I mean, the donor completely controls the relationship. And unless we adopt as fundraisers that mindset that we have to work especially hard to, uh, to present communications and to prevent viewpoints and to present ideas that speak to the needs and aspirations and desires of uh, people on the other end, then we're going to fail because there are a lot of choices out there. People are very busy. They have very busy lives. And we really need to um, do our best to understand that the American donor can ignore you, forget about you, uh, leave you, uh, disown you, <laughs> whatever word you want to use whenever they want. So, and this is especially true right now in, in direct mail. So, you know, from a fundraising standpoint, I'd say the big challenge is you've got this invaluable core in, in direct marketing of older people. And we need to uh, clearly identify better ways to get beyond just transactional uh, uh, relationships with our donors and engage them in such a way that they feel that they um, not only are part of the relationship, but it's an, they own it in the, in the sense that these people understand me. They speak to me my, uh, along the channels I prefer. They talk to me about the things I care about. And they're, they're my group. Um, going forward. So yeah, it's a bit of a nuance, but um, we really need to fundamentally understand that we don't own any of these donors and that they own the relationship. And unless we play ball by their rules, um, we're not going to win. So you know, it's, it's a, a great point. You, you think about if you flip that paradigm, because you're right, we always, we start with, how many donors do you have or what's your active, you know, donor file count, whatever it is. And if you think about the ownership of that relationship on the other side of the spectrum, uh, generational studies that are showing that the silent generation, uh, you know, gives to, you know, six organizations annually and, 
right. boomers giving to slightly more and Gen X giving to nine organizations annually. All of a sudden they have more friends. They have more relationships that they're engaged with. Millennials giving mm-hmm. to 12 organizations annually. And so they're giving less to each because they're taking their finite, what might be their finite budget right. uh, and spreading it amongst more th- more friends and we have to work harder to mm-hmm. grow that relationship and to develop loyalty and that's a two-way street it, it makes you think about stewardship and cultivating that valuable gift that you receive from someone in a different way it really does and it, it's a great point you're making and i you know i i think that one way to look at it is the relationship an organization has with a donor. I mean, it, it's very, um, you know, transferable when you think about the relationships you have, personal relationships you have in your own lives. And, and we all know people who, when we see them, kind of bring us joy, make us smile, make us think, whatever. And we all also know people when we see them uh, we know that the, all they're going to do is talk about themselves and talk about what's bothering them these days and talk about what they need and what they wish and what they hope for. And then transfer what everything I just said to the idea that there may be 10 charities who will reach out to you this month. Some of those charities, when they reach out to you, are going to bring you joy. They're going to make you think. They're going to make you feel good about yourself. They're going to make you kind of do handstands and say, wow, I really love what I can do through them. The larger percentage of organizations when they reach out to you this month are going to be like that person who walks up into the room and then starts talking about themselves and what they need and what they miss and what they want and what they feel as opposed to what you care about. And it's very much like our personal relationships and we all understand very easily, you know, what we like and what we don't like about our personal relationships. And I think as fundraisers, we need to understand and think about, think really hard about what kind of person are we to our donors? Are we that person bringing joy and excitement or are we that person with our handout asking for something? It's a, uh, you know, maybe a step that organizations can take is to, as a part of an annual planning cycle, you know, let's, let's have the spreadsheets, let's have the printouts, let's look at the metrics, let's look at our creative, but let's also dabble in an existential crisis for a moment to have that, that strategic <laughs> conversation about, hey, who, who are we? Like, how are we relevant or how are we authentic? Are we the person that shows up at the party that lets the air out of the room because we talk exactly. about ourselves? Uh, exactly. And, and, you know, you mentioned earlier Boy, the need to demonstrate impact and the need to demonstrate trust, if you leverage that in the wrong way, it can create a situation to where you're talking too much about yourself and not leveraging that information the right way in a relationship. Exactly. Exactly. And it's... um... You know, it's so funny when uh, oftentimes when I talk to organizations and I'll look at an appeal and I'll just put I'll put it down on a piece of the, on the table and then I'll start circling and I'll circle how many times we talk about we 
and how many times we talk about you. And um, in terms of impact, and you said it well, I mean, you know, oftentimes organizations will talk about the impact we've had and what we've done and what we, you know, hope to do. But as opposed to celebrating the donor's role in that and letting the donor know that it was because of them and thanks to them and with their help that look at what we've done together to help people. And it's so powerful that way. Tom, uh, last thing, just, uh, uh, you know, how can people connect with you? How can they get in touch? Where, where can they find you these days? Well, I'm, um, now I, for the last 12 years, I've, I've had my own company, Tom Gaffney Consulting. I, I work out of my home. And uh, when I uh, have trouble with writer's block, I'll go to the library or Dunkin' Donuts or keep changing spots in order to try to uh, come up with an idea. So if you happen to be in Wellesley, Mass., and uh, driving by a Dunkin' Donuts, look inside, I may be in there. Probably a safer way, to, uh, a more uh, assured way to reach me is either by phone, and my number is 617-877-3015. Or you can just reach me in, through LinkedIn or Tom Gaffney at hotmail.com, and my spelling is T-O-M-G-A-F-F. NY at Hotmail. Tom, I so appreciate you taking the time to chat today. It's been it's been fun, and you know I love you know kicking the tires on some of these uh, longtime concepts that we're still wrestling with because of new data points and uh, the emergence of new channels. And so, I really, you know, thanks for for chatting today. Well, and thank you for the time, and uh, you know, thanks to uh, RKD for uh, putting this together. I think it's a fantastic idea and i can't wait to hear what other people have told you hey we'll uh we'll definitely get you back on down the road okay take care justin okay so there's the chat with tom um hope you enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed sitting down with him was really moved by the discussion of donors and ownership within the donor space do we as nonprofits own donors? And that's the common language that we use. How big is our file? How many donors do you have? Versus do they as donors, as consumers, do they own us as the, the nonprofit or one of six, nine, 12, however many nonprofits they support? It's a, a nice paradigm shift and, and can be applicable to the way that we think through stewardship and cultivate people after they give with us. Hopefully it challenges you the same way that it's challenged me. So uh, yeah, so that's, that's the chat with Tom. Uh, like I mentioned at the outset, be sure to subscribe uh, in whatever app that you're listening and, and comment on this episode. Check out the other episodes of Group Thinkers and you can always, always throw us a follow and continue the conversation on Twitter. We're at Group Thinkers there. So that's it for this episode. Be sure to check out the other ones in season one. And we'll see you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, check out rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks to Becky V and the team for all the production work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.